Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. This is a business in the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. And we're proud to partner a range of organisations, including One Young World. My guests in this episode are Bazanka Vitanova and Keith Weed. Bazanka is the founder of the Entrepreneurial Muscle Lab and works closely with the National Science Foundation. Keith is the global chief marketing officer of one of the world's largest consumer goods companies, Unilever. We talk about how marketeers can change the world and the business case for sustainability. And I'll ask Keith why one of his first moves in his role was to ditch the CSR department. Then we'll discuss how we can all flex and build our entrepreneurial muscles and reveal some of the secrets of the best global teams. Let's get to the conversation. Zanka. Welcome. Hello. Hi. It's great to be meeting you today for the first time, Bazanka. Now tell me, founder of the Entrepreneurial Muscle Lab, well, I'm already hugely intrigued and I want you to tell us all about it. But before we do, just take us back. How did you very first get started? You had a very first job. What was that? Um, my very first job was in the corporate space. I, I worked at DHL in Germany. Uh, they have their European headquarters in, in Leipzig. Uh, so the very first thing I did was uh, set up a high potential uh, employees rotation program for employees around the European offices. So this is DHL, so logistics, yes. parcels and so on. You've had across your career this incredible involvement in some phenomenal international organisations, including One Young World and others. Has that always been the case and how did that first start? I, I know it's fueled your your global perspective, but how did you get into that? Um, that's a good question. Um, well, I guess coming from a smaller country, I grew up in Macedonia. I uh, I kind of wanted the global perspective. And then I went to a, a small college. It was very international. Uh, so it was a thousand students and they were coming from around 30, 35 countries. So I think those were my formative years and I kept looking for it at uh, and then my, my friends and uh, all of my uh, work assignments have been very global ever since. And I think that's where I feel most, most comfortable. Yeah, now you've worked and lived in seven different countries. You speak, I believe, six different languages. Has that drive to move through those countries, has that, uh, have you said, and next I would like to move to this area? Or has it been slightly more serendipitous than that, someone approaching you with an opportunity. What, what has driven those transitions? It has been very serendipitous, uh, and I think that it kind of stopped about a year ago. Uh, I had this desire to just go to a new place, explore it. Um, I moved to Boston four and a half years ago, and I think that at that point I was very tired of moving around, so, so I made Boston my home. So this is Boston, Massachusetts? Yes, yes. And I'm trying to now spend some more time in Europe as well. Um, so working with, with some clients over here and, and starting to do some work in Macedonia as well. So I'm, I'm excited about that. I see, that. so keeping your roots yes. uh, as well. So tell us a little bit more about uh, the Entrepreneurial Muscle Lab. What's it all about? So the Entrepreneurial Muscle Lab uh, came out of uh, some research I was doing through Fulbright for the past three years. Uh, I was um, discovering what makes entrepreneurs successful. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a very interesting finding that um, entrepreneurial skills can be built in a very similar way to um, the way athletic uh, training works. Um, so I formed this concept of an entrepreneurial muscle memory. Uh, and then have been working around um, kind of um, 
making the whole uh, vague notion of building entrepreneurial skills and all the soft skills, which are important for it, uh, making it a bit more tangible. So I have been developing tools that allow people to understand what their entrepreneurial profile looks like, um, gives them exercises to develop their weakest skills, uh, and then uses that to form teams that can perform well. Okay, so let's zoom into that just briefly. Let's give us uh, give us an example of what one of those entrepreneurial skills would be. Uh, sure. So there are seven. Uh, I have a framework of uh, of seven skills. Um, so one, let's say, an important one is is problem solving, mm. uh, and that one goes into using both um, both analytical skills and creative. Uh, and the creative part of it yes. uh, to be able to tackle the issues that, that jobs nowadays require. Now, we hear a huge debate, don't we, about entrepreneurs being born or made. And related, we think about this sort of idea of entrepreneurship within organisations. Yes. So, so, so don't disappoint us. Uh, you know, um, can we all be entrepreneurial? Or have you discovered that certain types of people are far less able? Um, so, so I have, let's say, a strong opinion on it. Something that was quite interesting that I discovered through my research is that uh, this entrepreneurial competency building starts um, between the ages of 10 and 14. Ah. So those formative years, most people who are entrepreneurial and have built companies themselves have had experiences where, where they have achieve some form of success creating something where they realize that they're capable of doing something that's different when most people say that it's not possible. Um, so that's something that's common for, I would say, a very large percentage, like 95% of the people that I have interviewed um, doing my research. Um, so I think that entrepreneurs can be made. I don't think that every single person should go and start their own company. Mm. Um, so I'm very much in favor of, um, of this entrepreneurial trend, which allows people to create value inside existing organizations. And I'm very conscious as you're explaining this, that some of the skills you're talking about, problem solving, creativity, they seem to top the list as humans increasingly work with machines of the most desirable Quality. So do you find yourself in conversation with very large organizations about this yet? Yes, yes. Uh, so at the moment, I'm working uh, with, with larger organizations and, and, having, uh, and having those conversations very much related to the future of work. Uh, and I'm also working with, um, with small and medium-sized enterprises, um, doing work in, in smaller countries where, where those companies um, kind of represent 98% of the economy. Um, it can be very useful plugging that entrepreneurial mindset right. and then allowing people to help those companies grow. So, so it works with both, but in very different ways. No, I see. I wanted to ask you about your work with the National Science Foundation. You're, you're an i instructor, and there you're equipping scientists and engineers with entrepreneurial skills. The question I wanted to ask was, um, within that, when to get some extra skills because clearly the beauty of a team is that you find the people who have the skills that you don't and yet here we are with you taking them from A to B with skills they haven't previously had. So some reflections on that, when to stick to what you're brilliant at and when to develop an extra set of skills. Um, so working with scientists and engineers, there is something um, in the US about 40% of, uh, of people with a PhD degree do not have a job uh, at the time of graduation. Uh, so it is a major issue. Um, so the i program has been set up uh, to support uh, transitioning their academic research into startups, but at the same time exposing them to something new. 
Um, so for those people, getting those entrepreneurial skills is very important, no matter which path they pursue. Uh, what happens with scientists is um, they feel very overwhelmed by, by the business language. Uh, they don't think that they can build those entrepreneurial skills. So very often it happens that they hire a CEO and then they end up kind of being, being ousted almost. Um, so what I do is make sure that they understand the basics. So they're not going to become the best at it, but at least they're going to understand what it takes to be good as an entrepreneur. And then if they're hiring a CEO, they would know what to look for uh, in their teammates. And on the other hand, if they decide to go into industry, uh, then they're going to understand a bit better what it takes to make it in that space. Excellent. Well, I'd like to talk a lot more about how those teams uh, occur in large organizations in a minute. And if we wanted to look at an organization of over 160,000 people uh, creating a vast array of products across food, across healthcare, beauty, and many more. Uh, we would look no further than Unilever, and I'm delighted to say uh, that our second guest today is Keith Weed, their global CMO. Keith, great to see you again. Yeah, nice to be here. Uh, listening to Bazanka, how are your entrepreneurial muscles? I've got to ask. Well, I was trying to think, what was I doing between hours 10 and 14? Yes! Uh, immediately listening to every word. Um, well, what weren't you doing? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yes, I am the Chief Marketing uh, Officer of Uni, but I'm actually um, a fellow of the Mechanical Engineers. And um, yeah, you were talking about first jobs. My first job was an apprenticeship uh, as an engineer for Michelin Tire Company in this vast factory in Stoke-on-Trent, 7,000 employees. I don't think they... I think now they have more sort of um, units of, of manufacture, but in that, that particular factory, um, it literally took in steel and rubber in one end and spat tires out the other. Yeah. Um, and you could smell the rubber within about three miles of getting to the factory. Um, and we remember the Michelin Man, this is the same organisation. Uh, yes, yes, very much so. Um, uh, and, uh, but then obviously you have to take a very different um, career through management and marketing and, and, and things like that. But some of that sort of problem-solving, analytical... Um, especially now in a sort of a data-driven marketing world. Is your reflection that there was a formative period, perhaps in your career, but in, in your life more generally, so, you know, in a, a phase, a, a chapter that really shaped who you are? I've always had quite a lot of um, energy and enthusiasm, um, as I recognise in you. Um, so we might have some similarities of, of backgrounds in that sort of area. So uh, having a go, I'm, I'm a great believer in 80% um, of success is showing up. Right. Um, and uh, you've got to be there. I mean, if you're not there, it's not going to happen. Um, and I think you know, when you're building your entrepreneurial uh, muscles, it's, it's taking part. Um, and, of course, the things that you then succeed in encourage you to do more. And things that you fail in, you learn some lessons and, and move on. Um, and it's somehow easier to do that when you're younger. I guess one of the challenges, though, I've already got to ask this, Keith, is that um, for a highly, uh, you know, self-confessed, creative entrepreneurial uh, character such as yourself. The challenge within a large organisation is that you would be a maverick and a misfit, and yet you have managed to thrive. How? Um, well, I think you have to be able to do uh, multiple things. I think if you, if you are one-dimensional in anything in life, you um, uh, won't get very far. I think um, you have to have uh, different skills and different uh, views. And um, I think what I've certainly enjoyed is, is learning from the people around me. So very early on, I wanted to go and work in the US because that was the, I'm going back in the 80s now. Uh, that was where you learn marketing. I mean, now I'd say go to Shanghai. Right. But um, back in the 80s, you know, go to the US. And, and Unilever very uh, kindly sent me to the US. Um, I spent five years there and just learned you know, hugely uh, different things about marketing. But one of the things that was quite striking is in the UK, it's not common to have an MBA 
Um, but in the US, you know, if you're going to work in marketing in the US, you have to have an MBA. Right. So this is a master's of business administration. It, absolutely. Um, and so you do your sort of university degree and then everyone do the, it, this. Um, but what I suddenly realized in the US is, is everybody knew how to do marketing. When I say knew how to do marketing, knew how to do marketing in a certain way. And although they had the wisdom of an MBA, they also had the fetters of an MBA. And so here was this sort of crazy creative kid from uh, London um, who didn't really know very much about how you were meant to do marketing in the US um, and ended up being really quite a big success because I just were unconsciously breaking these rules that not only were our marketers and our company following, but of course all the marketers and the, and the competitors were following as well because they all came from the same wonderful schools. Now, in terms of doing things differently, one of your first moves, you've been in this role, Global CMO, since 2010. I should say, listeners will, of course, know Unilever. But we are now talking about a stable of brands, including Dove, Lynx, Hellman's, Sif, Domestos, Magnum, and hundreds more. One of your first moves when you took the position as Global CMO was you scrapped the CSR division. Now, this would something be something that might strike fear into the hearts of anyone who wanted to make the world a better place. However... I sense you had a very particular reason for doing this. What was it? Yes, and so when I was given the role of Chief Marketing Officer, uh, and you're right, we are uh, a big branded business. Uh, every day, two and a half billion people use our products, a third of the planet, with 190 countries. And when I was given this role, I was actually also given the role of running sustainability. Um, so that's environmental and social sustainability, and also communications, internal, external, policy, etc. And actually, it's the joining up of that and realising that what you didn't want to do is have marketing in one corner trying to sell more stuff, the communications team in another corner trying to find some nice project uh, somewhere in the world they could put into the annual report with a nice photograph, and then the sustainability people in another trying to save the, the, the planet. And what struck me is CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility. Now, if you're doing nothing, doing that is great. So I, do, I would encourage anyone to do something positive. But actually, in large organizations, or I'd even argue in any organizations, if you have a group of people doing corporate social responsibility, it's sort of like they're doing good stuff to negate all the bad stuff everyone else is doing. Sort of offsetting. Yes. And so my thought was, no, we want to mainstream sustainability. Is it, sustainability is going to be everyone's responsibility in Unilever. And can we create a, a new business model that has social and environmental sustainability at its core as opposed to something you add on, sort of a, a charity. So to what extent would you then encourage all large companies to take such a similar bold move in scrapping that division? Or was there something particular that you felt in the DNA of Unilever and what made it tick that it was the right decision for that organisation? So I think the idea of combining the responsibilities of the people who are driving growth, the marketers, you know, what, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to serve uh, consumers, customers better uh, than the alternative, the competition, and hence your business grows, uh, if you can do that better. Uh, I think you should give the responsibility to those people to actually do a better job. I, I don't think that sustainability or, or, or social responsibility should be an afterthought. It should be in the core. So if you look at uh, Dove, for instance, you know, now a massive brand over 5 billion uh, in turnover. Um, but if you look at Dove, uh, the core of that is a, is a different point of view about the beauty industry. Uh, as what we'd call a brand with purpose, and the purpose is around um, uh, building self-esteem. So it's, it's looking uh, at a different uh, take on the beauty industry, uh, what we call real beauty. Um, but then it's not just uh, the brand say, it's also about the brand do. So the brand say is the advertising you see, and you might have seen advertising uh, for, for Dove, but it's not just that, it's what they do as well, say and do. And Dove is the largest educator on self-esteem in the world. Uh, we've already taught more than 30 million girls about uh, the beauty industry, decoding the beauty industry. And uh, within that, 
I think you get a, a brand that has greater responsibilities than you know, cleaning your face or something. Right, right. This is the campaign for real beauty. It strikes me, Keith, that uh, clearly businesses have a role in um, you know, improving the state of the world. And within that, so do CMOs, if they have a place at the top table. How often is it the case that they are, the chief marketing officer is at the top table? And what would be your advice to your peers about how to get there and what to do with that place when they've achieved it? I think um, what marketers uh, must avoid being is the sort of the, the afterthought of promoting the product. To me, um, and I often tease our, our CFO, our chief financial officer, I keep saying that you know, your job is to count where the money's gone, what we've spent. My job is to work out where the money's going to come from, the future growth. So uh, if it was a chief marketing officer, especially in this in- incredibly changing world we have right now, if you can focus on things like the trends, how do you bring the outside in and the future forward? And if you can do that in the organization, this is what everyone wants to know. So uh, you know, we, when I started this role, I did a big piece of work on, on future trends, which shaped our strategy. Um, and, and at the end of the day, business strategy is the core of what you're doing. Uh, shaped our strategy. Um, I uh, spent a lot of time building uh, our data muscles. So um, around, we have um, now 28 people data centers doing um, social listening. Uh, we've built our own first party data. Um, and so what you want to be able to do is to have a fact-based view of what your customers or consumers want, a fact-based view of where the world is going. A week ago, I was in uh, Vegas at the Consumer Electronics Show, over 10,000 launches of new things. Again, trying to work out what's going on, how are people's lives changing, how could we serve them better? And I think curiosity of a marketer is exactly what will get you to the top table. Right, on that, I must just ask you about uh, CES. Coolest thing you saw, something you saw. I don't necessarily mean gimmicky, but you thought, actually, I think I've glimpsed the future. Does anything come to your mind? Well, gosh, wow, uh, lots of things. How long have you got? Um, <laughs> but I mean, uh, you know, clearly the whole role um, of um, artificial intelligence and robots, etc. But the one thing I, that actually caught my eye, well, actually two things, one of which was a, an amazing sort of uh, look like straight out of a sci-fi um, helicopter, which was like a massive drone which is, uh, is being built by Bell for Uber to be able to provide um, sort of a taxi service in a helicopter. Right. Um, and it was, it, but it, it had these sort of four massive sort of um, fans that then yes, turned as it got up to, <laughs> turned into a plane. Oh, is it? Anyway, any, any, any young kid's dream of like, uh, what a sinister sort of... I'm seeing copy. a role here for yeah. Keith Weed in a sort of superhero movie. But the, but the one, but the one I, uh, I would really actually call out, which just shows how things uh, can be uh, made, uh, was a bread-making machine. Hmm. So one of the big challenges for supermarkets is uh, everyone loves to have fresh bread, uh, but they, uh, they can't make any money out of fresh bread because uh, there's so much thrown away at the end and you know, the actual ability to do it in store and so they bring it in, the whole logistics... And it's a combination of, uh, of robotics, et cetera. So this actually makes bread real time in the so size of a, of a large sort of dining room table. Um, and it literally needs the, the dough. It's also fantastic. And where does it sit? In the home or in, no, the, in, in the supermarket? Well, they, they think maybe they might be one day get it to home. But no, it's a supermarket. So it sits in the shop and needs the dough. Oh, I see. Bakes it in, in front of you. So it's, you can stand there and watch it all day or something. Um, and it's, so it's just keeping a few loads. Um, and then, of course, what it, because it's intelligent, it can work out how many have been taken and hence can adjust accordingly. Um, and I think that's the whole sort of pulling together of a whole bunch of stuff, something very practical. Yes. Bread. 
Right, it's a, it's a good example. Now, I'm going to bring uh, Bazanka back into the conversation uh, momentarily, but Keith, I do want your advice um, on a particular aspect of what you've done, because clearly you can do everything you can as an organisation, but ultimately, if we're going to make the world a better place, we have to be able to inspire and perhaps influence consumer behaviour. So what have you learned about when you as a corporation have permission to do that, trust to do that, and how to go about it? And a huge question, but right. any, 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 any distilled reflections perhaps? Well, one of the things I put in place when I first came into this role was what we call uh, the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. And you can go and look it up online. Um, and it's our social and environmental commitments. We made some big, bold commitments. Now, it was 2010. Um, uh, way into the future, about right? sourcing all our agricultural raw materials uh, sustainably by 2020. Then it was 7%, now it's 65%, well on the, uh, on the journey. You know, we're the largest tea company in the world, the largest ice cream company in the world, the largest soap company in the world. You know, we have a lot of, uh, of raw materials that we want to source uh, sustainably. But the other point of view we took is we were going to take responsibility for the whole value chain. So not just our factories and our offices, which most companies talk about reducing their energy, their water, whatever, which we've made some very good progress on, but saying, no, with the extended supply chain. So the water in a tomato in irrigation is our water footprint. The greenhouse gases being caused when someone heats up water in a washing machine to wash their clothes is our greenhouse gas. And in taking that whole um, footprint, you realize that factory operations, uh, our sort of actual operation side, is about 6 or 7% of overall footprint. About 25% is the extended supply chain into agriculture, et cetera. And then the biggest bit is actually consumer use and disposal. Um, and so that your question is very relevant because when I look at our targets, where we have fallen short the most are the targets of consumer use and disposal. And what I've learned is actually changing habits is really, really difficult. Mm. Um, and to show uh, how you do things very habitual is set up your... Um, your um, uh, mobile phone, your iPhone, your camera, whatever, in your bathroom and brush your teeth um, and then do it in a, a week later or two weeks later. You brush your teeth identically every single day. And because of that, changing habits is really, really hard to do. Uh, and we've found trying to get people to change the way they do things to be more environmentally or social responsible is very, very difficult. And the answer is, is what you have to do is you have to bake it into the product. So we have to innovate in ways that you sort of get sustainability for free. You can't avoid it. And also, of course, give people options and benefits. But for instance, we have hugely uh, water-saving devices um, in washing your clothes or your hair or whatever. And it's not until the water crisis hits, so like as we've seen recently uh, in, in South Africa or in Australia, that then people will change their habits. Um, and it just goes to show, and this is the big challenge, here we are in Davos talking about the challenge of the world, is it's not until I'm sure the world is falling apart that will actually motivate ourselves to do something about it. There's something about the human race that we, uh, we ultimately will be kicked into action, but it's not until it's right on you. And people don't move into these, these uh, more water-efficient products, which, by the way, we could use it anywhere right now, if you think water is copious. But the second you know it's uh, challenged, um, then you use the product. So my lesson is manufacturers, business leaders, we have to put uh, the innovation into the products to enable people to live more sustainably. Excellent. Now, you've been listening to uh, Bozanka uh, Vitanova speaking about her new muscle lab and uh, her work in sort of upskilling us, really, entrepreneurially. As you were listening to her, did any questions come to your mind about the work she's doing? What was it making you think? And what would you ask 
design here? Well, I suppose uh, um, we've been working uh, a lot with startups. In fact, out of the big corporates, we were one of the, the, the first to start up with what we call the Unilever Foundry and, and working with startups. And what we try and do is make that connection where we don't um, kill the entrepreneurs. That was a metaphoric work. That wasn't, um, <laughs> with our over uh, uh, kindness and size. Yeah. Um, there's lots of people in Unilever. We could, we could tie up a small company very quickly. So we take this approach of um, pitch pilot and partner. Uh, so we say, uh, um, you know, here's, here's our business problem. You know, if you pitch to us, we'll then uh, fund you up to a certain amount to do the pilot. Actually, we're not interested in the pilot. We're interested in scaling. And so are you, really. And then we'll partner with you. And that's worked quite well. We're now working with over 100 uh, startups on various uh, different projects and, some, and really amazing, innovative stuff, uh, exciting stuff. Right? But my question would be, is, of course, we're looking about how we could engage uh, with the entrepreneurs and the startups. So from your perspective, as an entrepreneur and a, and a sort of, how do you look back into big businesses uh, and, and what do you see are the, the challenges in engaging with them? So there has been this recent trend of, uh, of corporations getting into this whole startups, entrepreneurship, and setting up innovation centers on the side. So when you were speaking about uh, scrapping the CSR department, I wanted to get your thought on on what you think about having innovation centers set up separately. Because I find it quite interesting that they even uh, go into new buildings and all of that. Um, so I think that it makes sense to have large organizations work together with startups. Um, I think the benefits outweigh the, the downside at the moment. Uh, most probably the most challenging part is, is the culture fit. Because you have that startup working at some co-working space, um, kind of doing their own thing, changing their model every week or every month or so. And then when they get to a point where they need to integrate that with the way a larger organization functions, I think that's the most, uh, that's the part where you get the most friction. Because mm-hmm. um, it's just a different way of working and, and operating where you kind of need to get into this chain of, of approval and decision making where you can not just uh, do it yourself. Um, so I think there should be um, maybe a bit more of this integration. What I have seen, I think that Unilever does this as well, but what I have seen organizations do is having their employees work with those startups. So either help them out as business mentors on the marketing side or the finance side where this integration starts happening a bit earlier. Mm. Uh, it does make me wonder, there's a challenge there, isn't there, Keith? If there are different cultures at play, one technique is to just embrace that and hope that uh, you know, the one will affect the other in a positive sense. Or to the other extreme, you have this skunk works, which is off, often hidden out of view uh, down the other end of the campus. Where, where are you on that? Mix them up or um, have, them, have them separate? So uh, we acquire a lot of companies into the billions uh, of turnover. But what we do for the vast majority is actually run them as businesses with their founders. We keep founders. We love founders. We even have a whole founders club within Unilever. So whether it be Dollar Shave Club, uh, is still run separately uh, by the founder. Or Dermalogica runs separately, uh, etc. I can give you a whole host of examples. And the reason why we do that is is exactly your point, is to not lose their unique culture. The only things we bring in at the the beginning are are our safety standards, because we have a certain responsibility and safety levels that Unilever have that we won't compromise. And actually, the financial sort of uh, uh, discipline. You don't want to buy a company and have it fall over and go bust. That would be rather embarrassing, wouldn't it? Rather waste of money. But then after that, we actually let them run um, for a long period of time. Now, we must have bought Ben & Jerry's 
I don't know, 20 years ago, um, maybe even longer. And we've only just recently started integrating it now. If that acquired organization contains so many of the traits that you aspire to uh, to, to, to gain yourselves, yes. then I guess through osmosis or whatever process it would be, uh, slightly more scientifically put, then blend them in with everybody because we need some of that zest. So for goodness sake, don't put them out on a limb. Doesn't that doesn't Well, that no, I couldn't agree with you more, but what we need to do with an organization of our size um, is you need to be able to capture and, and then uh, sort of leverage leverage it if like so sort of every yeah we have five and a half thousand marketers if, if our five and a half thousand marketers all turned up on the door of um, dollar shave club they wouldn't sell many razors um <laughs> they'd be they'd be like sitting down drinking coffee and so uh, what we what we do instead is is we try and capture that learning so if you look now at the way we're doing marketing from the purpose side and uh, the social entrepreneur side a lot of it is inspired exactly out of the campaign approach of ben and jerry's uh, which goes for social and climate justice. And if you look at some of the stuff that they do on social media, etc., and then look across now um, into everything from Magnum ice cream through to um, personal washing up powder, uh, a lot of those uh, ways of doing marketing um, we have learned and borrowed. So I think what you need to be able to do is have a learning culture and willing to sort of uh, capture the capabilities and then scale them. And that, that's, of course, part of my team. I have a, a group of people who capture and scale capabilities. Can I ask you both for your top tips, particularly in terms of putting together teams that might work together across great distances, geographically, uh, departmentally and so on. What have you learned? And I'm looking as practical as possible here. Any things that you know have brought people close together and, and, and become more productive as a result? Bazanka, get us kicked off and then keep do chip in and we'll see if we can get a list. Um, so I think there, there are two parts of it. Um, what I specifically focus on is, um, is making sure that there is this diversity of thought when it comes to forming a team. Uh, it, it happens very frequently. I think people now understand this much more, but it still happens that similar people attract each other and then uh, have a very similar way of, of seeing problems and seeing opportunities. Um, so I think being aware of this, uh, understanding your own profile and bringing people who are, who are different than you, uh, but then um, have a way of complementing each other and working together, I, I think that that's very important to start with. I have worked in, in virtual teams for, um, I think that for my full working working career, I have found that meeting people in person at least once helps build that relationship. But I have had very close working colleagues that I haven't met in like a year and a half, two years. So I think setting expectations in, in the beginning, uh, understanding how people function, uh, especially around communication, is, is really important. So setting some rules around uh, getting responses, having uh, some kind of fixed uh, meeting time or a fixed time when you're all online and, and okay. you can work together. Um, that, has, um, that has helped me as well. I would agree. Diversity of thought and style is often said... Uh, you could, could get uh, a lot of very similar people together and then teach them to think more diversely. Or you could start with a group of diverse people that might be a little bit uh, easier. Um, and that, of course, diversity of, of uh, uh, gender or ethnic background, but also, as you say, thought and style can be uh, over and above that. So, um, uh, And I think the idea that uh, if you're going to be truly creative and find new solutions to, to problems, different thoughts coming in, I think, is, is, is the first thing. I think clarity of mission, I'd agree with you. Like, so what are we really trying to do here? Um, which seems obvious, 
But in so often in business, different people have a different tape running in their head about what's going on. And it's hardly surprising you don't make progress because you haven't got alignment. So I think alignment on what you're trying to, to do. I also do think actually practical tools to support. So the good old WhatsApp group or whatever, or maybe it's, it's Google Documents where you can actually work um, and, and build it. But I think some sort of communication thing, which is sort of more casual than sending emails or whatever, that everyone's in on. And that's why I still you know, love things like the WhatsApp group, because uh, by definition, if, if we're chatting, everyone else is seeing. And so yeah, we have one, by the way, of the executive team in Unilever. And here we are in Davos, and someone's chatting about how, oh, I bumped into so-and-so or whatever. And all of us are reading that. And that was not actually for me, but it gives you that context. Uh, so it does spark in my mind this idea that some of the most interesting ideas and conversations come from the periphery, say, sort of perhaps just slightly to one side. And something I've heard about face-to-face is often it's those corridor conversations, those accidental, uh, did you know I just bumped into, that sort of thing. So I'm going to ask you a specific question. Here we are in the mountains in Davos. For you, the single biggest plus of face-to-face communication, because we live in a digital world, we needn't have met, I'm happy we have. The single biggest plus, Keith? Uh, For me, the biggest plus is is reading people's body language and face. The thing you cannot do on the phone, in an email or whatever, is really read the person. So I think sitting opposite someone, talking to them, you can pick up all sorts of things about how they think. But also, as well, is where you can quickly strike a deal because you get alignment. Yeah, and, and that rapport, chemistry. Because would you add anything to Keith's list? Yeah, I think I completely agree. And something uh, that happens in those situations is uh, sometimes you can get a new idea. So when you're finished discussing whatever you were supposed to discuss, uh, and then you have a casual conversation, I have had uh, many interesting ideas and opportunities come that way. And I think it's difficult to do that virtually because you finish and then you close your computer. I agree. And, and it's a challenge for our technologists, how to make it yes. easier. Um, is there a particular book that you would recommend to our listeners? It doesn't have to be a business book, but it's one that you feel is worthy of a wider audience, something you know has played a role in your life in some um, small way. I'm a big fan of, uh, of Kundera. He's a Czech writer. Um, I think uh, one of my favorite books from him is The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Right. Um, I, I love his work, and, and I think it's kind of like philosophy disguised as a novel. Um, and it has uh, kind of like important implications, uh, personal life, and I guess uh, building relationships Excellent. in business as well. Excellent. Something from the Keith Reed bookshelf, perhaps. Um, uh, yeah, I, would lo- I love that book. Uh, I, I'd go for, I would go for Sapiens because I think understanding the story of of uh, the humans. Uh, and this is Sapiens? Yes. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll get that. Uh, but I'll, I'll throw in a business one for free because um, uh, a little bit of what we're doing. Uh, Leadership Plain and Simple by Steve Radcliffe. Okay, we're going to link to this. Now I'm going to ask you each to go back to the start of your career, perhaps to that factory for uh, Michelin. Uh, Keith, a piece of advice to your former self. Um, don't swat every fly. So I just jump into everything. I love everything. I will address this. I'll address that. I'll take part in this. I'll take part in that. So in theory, being more choiceful and not swatting every single fly. Bizanka, give, give us a, a piece of advice to your former self. Um, I think I, I would go with something a, a bit more, more tangible. Um, so what I have learned in, in the past few years is, um, is writing things down uh, when working with someone. So I think this comes uh, when we were speaking about uh, alignment of mission. Um, I have understood that uh, many times what I thought the other person understands is very different. So now I've started writing it down. I write it down. The other person does the mm. same thing. It's in a Google Just Doc. Just to encapsulate it. Yes. And the same thing with, with starting something new. 
Um, I think that it is important to set expectations in writing just so everyone is clear. If you could have coffee with anyone, uh, just because they interest you, they inspire you. I'm putting you on the spot. Uh, prefer if they were still alive. Bazanka, does anyone come into your mind? Um, I think that I would go with, with uh, Angela Merkel. I'm a big fan of, of everything that uh, she has done. I think that she's a very strong woman. Um, I would be very interested to hear her take. Excellent. Keith, who would you pick? Um, I'd go for Obama. And why? I think his type of leadership and what he set out to do, I very much admired. Um, and it's also interesting the challenges he got. And I'd just love to be able to talk through uh, the journey that he went on. Absolutely. Now, speaking of outgoing statesmen in every sense of the word, Keith, you are to depart uh, the Unilever Shores uh, in April of 2019. A brief uh, reflection on your career. And um, please pick something you're proudest of, if you would. And also, any, any reflection? Well, wow. Uh, so, yes, I've been working for you for 35 years. I can't believe there are many people who work that long in the same company. <laughs> but uh, having said that, you know, I've worked in different countries and, you know, um, uh, and probably the life things. I've, uh, I've got an American son. Uh, I learned how to speak uh, French. I think the work we've done around brands with purpose, so actually, um, whether it be a Ben & Jerry's or a Vaseline or a Dove or whatever, um, the idea of trying to uh, make brands be more than just their functional uh, benefit and, uh, and service to society as well. And then a uh, step beyond that, um, uh, so proving the case uh, for sustainability. So I think we have now proven that actually good business is good business. It's good for the planet and society, and it's good for the business as well. And since I've been doing this role, we've grown our sales and profit every single year in the last nine years and at the same time, uh, revolutionise the way uh, we do business as far as environmental and social sustainability. So I'm pretty proud of that piece as well. And, and, and rightly so. Um, any clue about the next chapter? Yes, oh gosh. I'm going to go plural, as they say. Right. I'm going to do lots of jobs and follow a few of my passions. So I'm already a trustee on our opera house. I love the opera. Um, I'm an advisor to McLaren F1. I love Formula One. Uh, for examples, and I can add a few more, but love I'm it. starting off... Um, leaving uh, Beijing on the 28th of May in a 1940 Pontiac Silver Streak to drive the Peking to Paris car rally. It's six weeks through China, Mongolia, oh. Uzbekistan, Russia, in through Moscow, <laughs> out into Latvia, and oh, then drop down uh, from Finland, drop down to Europe, end up in Paris six weeks later uh, with my co-pilot, who's actually my best man and, and big friend of 35 years. It sounds amazing. There should be a TV series in this. I think we could get some <laughs> advice from Bazanka on the, on the route as well. Uh, Bazanka, one uh, I'm going to ask you to look forward just very briefly. Uh, something you aspire to uh, in the next couple of decades. You're already connecting with your peers. I have no trouble envisaging you sitting down with Angela Merkel. <laughs> so, something on the agenda. You're helping a lot of people. What do you want for yourself? Um, I think that eventually I, I want to work on unemployment um, and um, using some of the tools and, and knowledge that I'm building to, to fix that on a, on a policy level. So Unemployment. I think that, yes. And this is particularly through the Entrepreneurial Muscle Lab, uh, making, making people yes. out of work being almost a thing of yes. the past. I'm seeing myself doing uh, the Entrepreneurial Muscle Lab for the next decade or so, and then potentially transitioning into policy and applying that in the education space. Excellent. So uh, toning up all of our entrepreneurial muscles, Bazanka Vitaneva, thank you. And uh, in my mind now, he will forever be Lord of the Flies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Keith Weed, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.